Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, the creator of maybe the most important movement in underground cinema, the cinema of transgression, and a man who helped to find art in New York in the 1980s, Mr. Nick Zed. Nick, how are things? All right. So, police state is becoming more relevant once again. Did you think this many years after making it that nothing would have changed and a new audience would be looking towards it? I didn't expect an orgy of police brutality that would occur in the year 2020, no. Uh, it's a surprise, I guess. Does, does it make you happy to finally see America taking notice of the police brutality and trying to fight to end it? Or do you see this movement going anywhere? I'm glad he's getting some exposure in the media finally, although I think this is a psyop we're being subjected to. First, the coronavirus psyop, which exaggerated the danger and uh, as a pretext to locking people up and taking away our civil liberties. Then uh, now it's uh, well, after we were told how dangerous it would be to go out in public, how we'd be killing people. Suddenly now, uh, no one thinks it's a bad thing to be out demonstrating against police brutality. So I suppose the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic was uh, a useful uh, psyop. Now the next useful psyop we're being subjected to is um, the... uh, identity politics, which will uh, now be a way for the Democratic Party to co-opt the legitimate rage of the black community and poor people about police brutality. And uh, then we see these out-of-control cops all over uh, the country destroying uh, probably uh, agent provocateurs doing the looting and the uh, destruction, which, of course, uh, benefits the ruling class, as it always does when there's a nonviolent movement for change. But I'm glad that now, at least as part of the conversation, to defund the police. Their massive budgets are being abused. And... uh, It's revealing, I suppose, to the world that America is a police state, which is what I said in 1987 when I made the film. It's just the most sophisticated totalitarian system. And now we have really the only way to uh, reach people with the truth is uh, through the Internet, which I hope won't get shut down completely since all corporate media has been co-opted. By money. You're in Mexico now. How do you feel like they're handling everything? I don't think they're doing such a great job, really. The uh, government of uh, Obrador, the Morena Party, was elected in order to uh, reverse what was the normal policy for the last 70 years, rewarding corruption, rewarding the rich, the 1%. Uh, Obrador, the current president, was supposed to represent the working class, the poor people. But what has he done since this virus has occurred? He's been imitating Donald Trump with the uh, lockdown, 
he hasn't provided any kind of uh, assistance, public assistance to uh, the people. No stimulus checks here. I mean, Trump's actually uh, providing that, which is a joke, obviously. It's just a giant bailout to uh, the giant corporations in America. But uh, $1,200 would have gone a long way to help the poor people here and working class and me. We don't, they don't even suggest that. They, should, they don't even discuss rent cancellation. I mean, all these people here now can't work, can't pay rent, and we're, uh, we don't really know what's going to happen. I mean, the government doesn't seem to, uh, too concerned about it standing up to the landlords, that'll be the next thing happening, mass evictions. When, when the mass evictions happen, then everybody's out on the streets spreading the virus again, I guess, if we're to believe that this pandemic is as dangerous as they say it is. It's just, uh, I mean, I had three jobs that were uh, canceled, uh, postponed, and which I would have been making money. So I, I've had very little income during the last three months. And I resent that the government here, which is supposed to represent the working class and the poor people, isn't doing a thing, really. They're just, uh, well, at least we don't have the police brutality as bad here. Uh, and I saw a video of uh, some protesters here uh, where a guy lit a cop on fire. That, that was a good video. Yeah. You didn't see that one? I, I actually did see that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's like uh, good tips for uh, dealing with uh, cops, I suppose. But um, really, the, the police here in Mexico City, from my experience, are much more polite. And uh, they don't seem to have the uh, psychosis that's uh, manifest, especially in New York, by these uh, kind of uh, Neanderthal uh, creatures in uniform going around harassing people and uh, beating them up. The police here uh, can be uh, generally easily bribed, and uh, they're not being paid that much, uh, which uh, maybe th that's a good thing. When they're paid less, they behave themselves more. Well, speaking of New York, uh, how early did you make the move from Maryland to New York? Uh, that was in 1976. So when you moved there, did you feel like you were getting the art fix in New York that you were vastly looking for as a youth or were you still not exactly seeing what you wanted to be seeing i did not see what i wanted to see i mean uh actually growing up in maryland i wasn't that culturally deprived except that i never i didn't know any artists i was the, really the only one uh, well actually i made movies you know as a teenager uh, using uh, an eight millimeter camera and um I had a couple friends who also made these amateur uh, eight millimeter movies. So this, we had this kind of like little scene going there in Maryland. And uh, there was also uh, comic collectors, fanzines were coming out then. So I was making my own fanzines at, you know, when I was uh, 12 years old, which almost no one saw. I, I mean, I edit put it together and uh, there would be one copy, right? Um, 
But then I read about New York and what was happening there, and uh, there were, see, there was still a counterculture back then in the Stone Age uh, when uh, there'd be head shops, you know, where you could buy underground comics and record stores. I mean, you could find it was a completely different world back then, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s, where you go to a sh- like a small shopping mall and uh, in a grocery store, they'd have a, a rack with record albums. And I remember I, I went into this one drugstore and they had the Mothers of Invention. Uh, they're, uh, we're only in it for the money. And, and on the cover, it's, you know, the Mothers of Invention in drag. And I, I thought, this is incredible. There's something this radical and offensive would be available in a suburban shopping mall. (laughs) (laughs) But then also, I mean, you know, I could go to a library and uh, take out uh, Velvet Underground's first album. But then, I mean, I wanted to be a part, I wanted to go somewhere where there'd be some kind of activity and having read about Warhol and the underground film scene. Coming to New York, I had hoped that there would be something going on, but it was pretty dead when I arrived. Students in art school were just, uh, I don't know, careerists. Uh, There was a lot of conformity. Uh, But then, I mean, the good thing was punk rock, you know, like going to CBGB's, Max's Kansas City, and that was being part of something uh, radical, which was in opposition to the status quo. And as being part of that uh, helped inspire me to make my first feature film. Well, when you were coming up with the manifesto for the cinema of transgression, were you looking at the other movements and filmmakers like Godard and the French New Wave, or was the primary goal really just to see how do-it-yourself you could truly get? It was do-it-yourself. I mean, preceding the cinema of transgression were the films of uh, Amos Poe and the so-called no-wave filmmakers who were very influenced by Godard and the French New Wave. And I was not interested in repeating that. I didn't think it was uh, effective. So I had, uh, at the time, in 1979, came up with this uh, idea of uh, cinema transgression, but there was no one else making films similar to what I was doing, utilizing shock value and humor. So... um, I waited, and then uh, it wasn't until, you know, 1984 that uh, Richard Kern and Tommy Turner and uh, Cassandra Stark Longleg started making these, you know, Super 8 movies, which um, were kind of similar aesthetically to what I had started in 79. Well, They Eat Scum might be the most complex and technically brilliant 8mm film ever made. Can you take us through the filmmaking process of that? Sure. I uh, first wrote a uh, synopsis and typed it up, and then I uh, wrote a screenplay. And then I shot some uh, screen tests with Donna Death in 16mm, and then uh, realized that it would be too expensive to shoot in 16mm, so I uh, went to, uh, there was a place called Millennium, film uh, archives on East 4th Street where you could uh, you'd pay a fee, a monthly fee, and you'd get access to editing equipment and a camera. 
so uh, with the camera that I rented, I was able to uh, shoot the film. And um, well, I did actually. I I, I went to uh, backstage and showbiz. They were these uh, newspapers where you could run classified ads, ran classified ads asking for actors, and I did auditions. That's how I ended up with uh, the actors who uh, appeared in the film. And uh, other people were uh, just punks that I knew hanging out. And I uh, shot, you know, that band, The Blessed. There were, there were other bands that I shot which uh, got cut out. Actually, I, sh- I shot, uh, what was that band? Uh, I can't remember their name. Um, but I did shoot, uh, I shot The Cramps. But the camera I was using malfunctioned and the, none of the footage came out, which was unfortunate because Lux and Terrier vomited on stage. <laughs> would have been great footage. Well, did you find that They Eat Scum was a relatively easy film to acquire an audience after the underground scene was starting to bubble up because of guys like John Waters and Andy Warhol? Um, well, uh, Andy Warhol was uh, probably 15 years before that. And John Waters was uh, probably 10 years before that. But uh, And by the time uh, that I made They Eat Scum, John Waters <clears throat> had made uh, Desperate Living, and that which was showing in a real movie theater. Well, there was uh, well, I premiered it at uh, this place uh, called uh, OP Screen, run by a Palestinian guy named Rafiq, who would show underground films and... Uh, I think he he was one of the first people to have shown John Waters movies back in the early 70s in New York. And uh, after the premiere, uh, which was on a Saturday night, on a Sunday night, I premiered The Scum at Max's Kansas City. And uh, I got big crowds for uh, both of those screenings. In fact, at the Max's Kansas City screening, John Waters showed up with Amos Poe and introduced himself and congratulated me, which I never had expected. Then I showed that you know I showed that movie every midnight at OP Screen and uh, people from punks would come you know visiting with bands not from uh, San Francisco and uh, some band uh, came and uh, they were with this guy named Joe Reese from Target Video who loved the film and uh, flew me out to San Francisco where I showed it later that fall and even played in uh, Germany in the fall of '79. What was your reaction to the amount of musicians that gravitated towards your work and the work of the cinema of transgression? I suppose they were, they were like, you know, the big stars or the figureheads at the time. And, uh, so they uh, attracted uh, widest or the, the biggest audience in the underground, I guess. It was kind of actually at the time, it was kind of a snobby scene, really. Uh, if you weren't an insider uh, which I was not. I've always been an outsider. You would encounter uh, kind of condescension, or uh, well, a lot of you know, a lot of those no wave bands uh, were lived on the west side near Soho, which was a more high income area. I, I lived on the Lower East Side. Well, actually, I lived in Brooklyn, then I moved to the Lower East Side. Most of the activity that was occurring, that all, all, all the best bands were playing, you know, on the Lower East Side at CBGB's or Max's Kansas City. Uh, every once in a while, there'd be a, a show somewhere on the west side, but uh, the west side has always been of Manhattan, uh, kind of snobby and uh, rich people, you know, uh, or uh, academics, which is um, really the community that No Wave uh, emerged from. And I wasn't that close with those people. 
they immediately got critical recognition from the Village Voice, uh, who um, the writers at the Voice just completely dismissed cinema transgression and also dismissed a film by Gordon Stevenson, uh, which came out around the same time as the AIDS film, which was called uh, Ecstatic Stigmatic, which was also shot in Super 8, and which he was editing at around the same time as I was. He was in Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, and his girlfriend was Muriel Serenko, whose sister was Exine. And after, uh, well, when his film premiered in mine, in the fall of 79, the critic at The Voice just totally dismissed us. And that was when I first realized that uh, one could be subjected to a censorship of omission, which is entirely arbitrary. And there, the way to uh, circumvent that would be to create your own media, which I did with the Underground Film Bulletin four years later. Well, when did you initially meet Lydia Lunch? And do you look back on that relationship in a new light now? Yeah, I met her in uh, 1980 when I was uh, about to shoot Bogus Man at a place called Tier 3, where I also met uh, Basquiat. Um, but, uh, yeah, she had agreed to meet me and uh, appear in the film. And then when I went to meet her, uh, she wasn't there. We had a camera crew. I uh, shot the film anyway uh, with other people. And then uh, I, I well... I tried to raise money to do a feature film called The Deep Programming, but I couldn't get money for that. Then I did Geek Maggot Bingo, a feature film, horror comedy, that came out in 1983. Lydia Lunch showed up at the premiere, as did uh, David Johansson from the New York Dolls, and it's a, a big crowd, right? She uh, introduced, well, she just said, hello, gave me your phone number, and then uh, a couple days later we met up and were having wild sex, you know. But then uh, we had a relationship that lasted a couple months. I went to London to uh, be with her, and we made the Wild Road of Lydia Lunch. She, uh, I remember at the time when I first showed it to her, she told me it was the best film she had ever been in. The thing with Lydia Lunch is that I, I feel that really she has zero talent. Her records are unlistenable. Her main talent was being sexy. And uh, that is no longer a talent she has since she's an old woman. So I don't really have much uh, to say about her. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Geek Maggot Bingo, it's a film that, to me, seems like you maybe put your most heart into. Do you feel this way? And was that because of your appreciation for the B-movies of the 50s? Yeah, I do recall, I mean, as a child, on television, they would show horror movies and science fiction films, you know. And it must have been an influence. Also, Dark Shadows, the uh, soap opera on ABC television, was a huge influence. Which at the time I wasn't even wasn't even aware. Or I don't know. I guess well, you know, when you're 12 years old, you're influenced by a lot of stuff. I did visit the studios of Dark Shadows when I was 13 and got to uh, meet some of the uh, actors, and was surprised at how small the studio was. It was a very uh, kind of amateurish show that uh, had a lot of camp value and great acting. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I, I have seen the show. It's I, I find that show fantastic, to be honest. Yeah, I love it. I mean, Jonathan Frid was such an, a great actor. We, we kind of, up in Canada, had a show similar that was the Hilarious House of Frightenstein. 
So I've I've watched both throughout my entire life. I've found both to be amazing. Well, there was also a soap opera called Strange Paradise. Yes, I, yes, I remember that as well. Right. Also shot shot in Canada with some of the same people that worked on Dark Shadows or the same writers. And the uh, Dan Curtis version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was shot in Canada in 1968. So, uh, well, I was. Um, actually uh, very influenced by the uh, universal horror movies of the 1930s, especially, you know, Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the Ruben Mamoulian version with Frederick March. Uh, I, I love those films. They're just my favorite horror movies. And I suppose uh, the fact that Dark Shadows was so derivative and, uh, well, utilizing the plot lines and from uh, the mythos that was created in the universal horror films that I uh, felt I could parody it. I think around the same time I became aware of Ed Wood and his movies, which were an inspiration. Um, so then, yeah, I actually thought that Geek Mag Bingo was going to make money, which is laughable in retrospect but at the time uh, there was still uh, the concept of the midnight movie which uh, john waters was the biggest success with you know shooting a feature film in 16 millimeter and then getting it shown in uh, real movie theaters or getting it blown up to 35 millimeter but by the time you know by the early 80s the midnight movies were over with unfortunately that, that was a product of the counterculture with, from the baby boom generation when there was enough, you know, young people that wanted something to do on the weekends that uh, it, it would be an alternative to uh, Hollywood. You know, the Alejandro Jodorowsky's uh, El Topo and uh, I think uh, Eraserhead also was one of the last uh, midnight movies. Well, actually, you know, I, I would go to these, uh, I'd go to horror conventions I go to comic conventions, horror, and this one horror convention, they had a, a costume contest, and the guy that won was Tyler Smith, who was a you know, brilliant uh, special effects person and makeup person. He designed a costume uh, with two heads, kind of based on the Meta Luna mutant, and uh, talked to him about doing the monster costumes for Geek Mag at Bingo, which uh, he was very... Uh, creative and uh, helpful on that he did background uh, pictures he, he he was just very creative and uh helpful you know yeah originally actually i, I had uh, contacted tiny tim to see if he could star in it as a mad doctor because i had seen him interviewed on the joe franklin show it was this program that was on uh at midnight on uh some station in new york city where he he would in anybody could go on his show and uh, several people who had become famous later, like Barbara Streisand, had appeared on there before they got famous. And uh, Tiny Tim was on there talking about how he'd love to be in a horror movie. So when I contacted him, he wanted $3,000 a day. And uh, that was our basically our entire budget. You know, we, we couldn't afford him, really. So then I, I got this other actor, uh, Robert Andrews, from... Uh, another uh, casting call, you know, uh, audition. And uh, fortunately, I got Richard Hell, who was great, playing the cowboy. 
and Brenda Bergman, who I had loved when I saw her performing uh, with Divine in a live uh, comedy musical called uh, Women Behind Bars. And she was in another one called The Neon Woman. I played at this club called Haraz Uptown. And Zachary, I got him by just looking his name up on in the phone book and calling him. I've been aware of Zachary from Famous Monsters of Filmland magazine, which I read in the, you know as a child and a teenager. Probably most people won't even know who these people are now. <laughs> Whatever. I feel like most, especially everybody that was involved in the... Uh... In, in those early uh, Famous Monsters magazines are definitely making a resurgence now, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. But The Bogus Man is another film that seems to be more relevant now than when you made it. Do you feel like you set a precedent for these Trumpian times, or was it and has it always truly been this way? Uh, it's never been this crazy. <clears throat> I mean, there have always... See, there have always been conspiracies. And uh, what I hate is the way the term conspiracy theory is now used as a pejorative. It's a, it's a stock phrase which people use to shut down debate. And uh, the term was originally used by a CIA asset in corporate media in 1967. They, they've realized that if you dismiss any kind of uh, alternative investigation of the facts that deviate from the uh, official story, like the Kennedy assassination being the lone gunman theory, which doesn't hold up, uh, the best way to shoot down any argument that challenges the status quo is to say, oh, that's a conspiracy theory. And I'm... Uh, I, I, I just can't believe so many people are so narrow-minded, even among people that I know, artists, uh, will use this term to just completely dismiss something that they have not investigated. So at the, the time when I made The Bogus Man, I realized that Carter, the president at the time, was uh, not going to be re-elected. I could see that was what was going to happen. However, uh, Edward Kennedy, who ran against him, probably would have beaten Ronald Reagan. But the corporate Democratic Party, which is neoliberals, once again, uh, the media found a way to discredit Kennedy in an interview that Roger Mudd did. on. Uh, and uh, I guess suppose it, it, I could see that uh, controlled corporate media really dictates uh, political discourse. Most people are intellectually lazy. They, this is way before the Internet. Uh, but then there have always been alternative sources of information and political analysis which, are, which contradict the dominant narrative. I think I've always been uh, radicalized or, uh, well, my, my perspective has always been from the outside, from the bottom looking up, you know, I'm, I'm not an insider and I don't believe corporate media. So I made this film, The Bogus Man, as a kind of a, a parody of a documentary in which a so-called terrorist is urging uh, people to assassinate the president. So he, which is actually, it's very similar to what's happening right now. I wish somebody would kill Biden. 
uh, if uh, he could be replaced by someone stronger, maybe uh, Trump wouldn't uh, win. But the, the problem, of course, is that neither of these two candidates currently are anything but puppets, really. And uh, they, they both are basically from the same party, the business party. You know? the, the Democrats and Republicans serve the same masters, and it's, it's all really a gigantic mass deception designed to uh, turn us into slaves. You know, there are, uh, I don't know. I, I don't think that voting or uh, parliamentary cretinism is a way to affect real change. I think it re real change requires people out on the streets demonstrating and putting pressure uh, on uh, these elected officials. But I, re I really think at this point, uh, a, a revolution is necessary, a violent revolution. I, I don't think that voting changes anything. And now that the voting's all rigged anyway, you know, with the electronic voting machines, which nobody wants to discuss, you know. <laughs> of course, now I'm going off on a, a tangent, which has probably little to do with filmmaking, but, you know, it's what I'm, I, I focus on, you know, the way that people's uh, perceptions are manipulated, their, their consent is manufactured, obviously, right? Well, another political note that I think is relevant right now would be, would be drag in the LGBTQ community. You did so much drag back when it was still a transgressive act. How do you feel about it being more mainstream now? That's a good thing, I suppose. I mean, you know, like even today, today my son was photographed by this drag queen in New York named Miss Guy, uh, who is doing portraits while people are in lockdown. She does portraits, right? So people turn on their computers and they, they do, she do, you know, the, they decide, uh, she does a photo, you know, uh, so she did a photo of uh, my son and his mother, and they got all made up. And he's he's made up in drag, right? Uh, and they're telling him how uh, beautiful he is and all that. And uh, and I thought um, I I didn't I had no input in this really. It was Monica's idea, and uh, she's like, well, it, it's going to be on CNN. They already did one report on what him doing it, so this will get our photo. You know, our photos will be on CNN. Is that a good thing? Is that big? You know, I'm like, well, I guess it'll reach a wide audience. So I suppose, you know, right? It's just that I I feel like my, you know my son should be able to choose for himself. But but then at the same time, I want to support whatever he wants to do. So you know, if if, he, if it's fun for him to dress up like that, great. You know, I mean, I, I do remember like when I was a kid, uh, one Halloween I dressed up as a female. You know. Uh, most of the time I'd be monsters or robots, right? But, uh, I mean, back then it was just, you never see drag queens anywhere, you know, not in the media, that's for sure, or even in real life, or at least where I grew up, right? Uh, but then I, I found out about, you know, through the Warhol films and all that. I mean, yeah, I think it's a good thing that uh, there's more diversity and tolerance, or there should be. The, the only problem is that I think that these, uh, this is being used by uh, the global elite to divide people that uh really the uh like the democratic party wants to appear inclusive right so then they they go and stand on their knees you know wearing african scarf 
feeling sorry for black people or uh, you know uh, transgendered people and gay people we're all focused we're misdirected to these identity issues that really are not challenging the power elite you know or the, the structure of oppression which has nothing to do with those issues you know you've always been this refreshing voice in the anti-establishment and you've clearly stated in the manifesto that film schools should be blown up why did why did you stay in school for so long? To get access to the equipment because I was too poor to uh, buy a camera. Well, actually, you know, anything that could keep me from having to hold down a normal nine to five job was a good thing. I had uh, I got student loans back then. You know, you could get student loans, which I never paid back. Um, now I understand, you know, the student loan debt, that's something, I mean, all these universities should be free. Students shouldn't have these giant debts that are going to, you know, curse them for the rest of their existence. But uh, at the time, that it was useful to me. And plus, the thing is, like, I didn't know how bad film school would be until I went there, you know. I mean, there, there were some good things. I had one film teacher who was good, who exposed us to some more radical films or in really interesting films. You know? well, I saw a few, you know, underground films from the '60s that way, but uh, mostly it was it, it was this hierarchical structure which I rebelled against, and uh, I was always getting in trouble. You know, I, in the film school, right? Uh, the uh, I was being, uh, the uh, well, the head of the film department hated me. I was the only student who was actually, you know, making. Uh, movies really like most of the students like now you know they, they sit around they pretend right there's usually i mean could be since then i've you know been a film teacher a few times in small schools and uh, you know you discover that uh, a lot of them are killing time these students pretending or whatever and it's usually be one student who's actually making a movie right so it wasn't until after i uh, went through that experience that i realized that uh, well, the thing is, I was making movies before I ever went to film school. You know? I taught myself. I was doing it when I was 12 years old. So I went. I went to the film school so that I could uh, get access to 16 millimeter and Super 8, and learn how to do sync sound. You know, uh, back then they had these Nagras, uh, these recording or well, tape recorders, right? Reel to reel. Where the sound was not on the film, right? I mean, it is very rudimentary, but uh, at this time, it has you know a quality, a, an authentic quality that you can't get with digital. But I do uh, appreciate. I like having you know digital video. It makes it so much easier to shoot now. Well, what sparked the move into painting? That was um, after I in the. In the early 2000s, in 2003, I started shooting uh, a public access TV series called The Adventures of Electroelf with Reverend Jen, who was uh, the host of an open mic scene. She was a writer and an actress, and she was very popular. She had access to, well, she had these followers, you know, every week it would be like an audition with... Uh, comedians local comedians and freaks and uh from that i had a, a 
a talent pool that I could work with, and I shot 31 episodes of this TV series. And in the middle of making this TV series, we broke up, but we still kept working together. Uh, and but her uh, borderline personality disorder was so severe; uh, she was a very uh, abusive person emotionally. And uh, after going through that experience and finishing the series, I was really fed up with film making movies, right? Uh, although it was a great experience, you know, making that TV series. I think it, I improved as a filmmaker, you know, uh, and the pressure of telling a story within a half hour, writing, directing, doing the lighting and all the rest of it. Although she wrote half the episode, uh, it, it was great, really, because we competed with each other, right, uh, to write better episodes. But after that, I, I was disillusioned with um, working with a lot of these people who were uh, basically art cripples who had mental problems. A friend of mine, uh, this guy named Vox, who everybody hated, but who was quite brilliant, uh, he, he was also a satirist and a political analyst. Uh, suggested that he commissioned me to do two paintings. So I started doing uh, these um, round uh, paintings, first in acrylic, then in oil, and got the idea that if I could uh, do a branding thing with uh, these circular canvases that maybe I could make some money selling the paintings. And uh, it was a completely different kind of uh, process for making movies didn't involve uh, collaboration. It was much more uh, individualistic. That's uh, what I did for a few years. Then I moved to Mexico and uh, started shooting some music videos. But I did recently do another painting since this lockdown thing's going on. Well, can you take us through your extremist manifesto that came to be when you moved to Mexico? Like when I was in New York, I felt that if I could find some other artists in Mexico who had a similar method or a, a similar kind of outlook, perspective, and art, that maybe I could jumpstart a, another movement, you know. And having done the cinema transgression, I realized, you know, like the same as with the surrealists, the uh, academics and the uh, journalists on the outside, it always excites their imagination to uh, discover uh, an insurgent movement. So uh, I found there were maybe two or three other artists here who were doing really great paintings. They hadn't been accepted as the gallery circuit or the museum uh, world. One of them was a tattoo artist who did these kind of pornographic uh, cartoon painting illustrations. Another was a photographer. And another guy did these dolls, you know, they're kind of like uh, sculpted uh, mutant dolls, right? And then I'm doing the circular paintings of these uh, fetuses, you know, that are deformed or whatever. And I thought, uh, what we're doing is the exact opposite of contemporary art, which is very sterile. It's very uh, appropriationist and conceptual and based on money. Uh, so I wanted to... Well, actually, it was uh, Rodrigo Zarati, this uh, Mexican uh, artist, who suggested to me 
why don't you write a manifesto? And I, I thought, I've already done that. He's like, no, do it because this will really be, this will get us attention, right? So I wrote this manifesto, put it up on Facebook, and then it went viral. Also uh, published it in a fanzine. I put out a couple fanzines here and did a show at this place called the Chopo Museum, which is more of an underground kind of uh, museum. I really hate contemporary art or so-called contemporary art because it's not about skill at all. It, it, it's about being a con artist. It's being a good business person and having the right connections. And it's very snobby, elitist. And you find a lot of boring, the most boring so-called art is from this so-called uh, contemporary art that uh, dominates the uh, museums. The director of the new museum uh, was quoted as saying, uh, skill has nothing to do with contemporary art. You know? So, so if, you, if you actually know how to move a paintbrush or if, if you can capture something, uh, that's to your detriment. You, you were rejected for this. You were rejected for having talent right, uh, in the contemporary art world. So it's basically people with connections, they get successful, they make huge amounts of money, collectors buy this junk, and then I guess it sits in a warehouse until they flip it or throw it away. This, to me, the period we're now living in is a black hole in uh, art history, and I'm hoping something you know will replace it. Right? But having, having a historical awareness of the history of, of art, modern art, uh, I realized that Salvador Dali went through the same thing. All the museums hated him. The galleries hated him. He was locked out, and it was only because he had Gala, this Russian uh, wife who had connections, that he was able to sell to private collectors and circumvent that, and then he became the most popular surrealist. The surrealist movement really was quite small, I think. It was similar to the cinema transgression, where just a few people working you know, together or not together or whatever, uh, collaborating for a, a time and then uh, branching out. Do you feel like one of the most important voices in Mexico when you first moved there was the magazine Hatred of Capitalism? Yes. It was the most important magazine in the world. <laughs> you probably never saw it, though, right? <laughs> I've, I've actually uh, I've tracked down two copies. Where'd you track them down? <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, one of my friends who lives in Colorado, he is from Mexico, and he tracked him down for me because I was interested because I heard that the new manifesto was published mm -hmm. in there. Yeah, I was just looking... Looking around, he finally found them and essentially Xeroxed them and sent me a few, a few like little snippets from it. Great. I, I sold uh, some copies to Printed Matter in New York. Well, also one of the issues that I did where um, when I first came to Mexico, I um, I would go to I, I go to this. Uh, this kind of salon, right? Where it was this, this lady had a in her apartment, they, they do these, what they, they call drawing classes or something. They weren't classes. It would just be, a, they'd have a, naked, a, a nude model. And everybody would sit around and, and with their sketch pads, draw the, the nude. It would be either a woman or a man. 
And then, you know, they have, you know, a bottle of wine and, and a little food, you know, and it was great. I'd go there, you know, every week. And I'd, uh, you know, I could practice my uh, drawing skills, right? And then uh, I went to Berlin in 2013 for uh, the Cinema Transgression Retrospective. I almost thought it was 2012. And, and it was at the Kunstwerk Museum. And when I was there for uh, a week, uh, it kind of um, made me think, wow, wow Berlin, uh, at least East Berlin, kind of reminds me of New York back in the 90s. And I wrote a screenplay that was based on my diaries, my personal um, psychodramas with different girlfriends. And uh, I then tried to... Uh, you know, raise money to make this into a feature film, but got rejected by all the funding sources. But then I had the uh, screenplay translated into Spanish, uh, hoping to maybe even shoot it in Mexico. So one of the issues of hatred of capitalism is the screenplay in Spanish with the drawings of the uh, naked women. That came out pretty good. Uh, actually, the uh, Chopin Museum, which uh, sponsored this uh, show I did there uh, called Fanzinoteca, printed uh, copies there they even constructed i, I said can, can, they said we want to exhibit all your magazines and fanzines you've collected since you were a child you know i got them to construct this uh, 12 foot high pyramid in black that we, we used to uh, with shelves on it or, where we had my the comic books that i had collected and the fanzines the rock and roll zines and all the under the punk magazines and all this stuff that that show was up for like a month, right? No, wait, that I, that must have been maybe that was in 2014, because I remember when I first came here, it took forever to get any gallery or uh, any place to show my paintings or do a show. I did go to San Miguel Allende for the there was a Bayes Artist Museum there, so called, and uh, San Miguel Allende supposedly a more uh, avant garde you know place or something and. Uh, they did an exhibit of my paintings there, and it was in this room, right? The room was right next to another room that had a, a painting by uh, David Alfaro's Cicados, who to me is the greatest Mexican muralist. So I had, I, I had this room next to it with all my stuff, right? And at opening night, you know, it was great. You know, all these people came. But then the day after opening night, they put a rope in front of the entrance to the room with all the paintings. And I was like, how's anyone supposed to see the paintings for the next month? And they said, oh, well, the, we can't, we're not paying the security guards. <laughs> okay, so you're going to have a bunch of paintings in a room that nobody can see, see for a month. And that, that was a big plan, right? Well, that's how things work here sometimes. Well, can you tell us about the Russian camera that you use for Paradise Lost? <laughs> I don't know, some kind of eight millimeter camera, very uh, rudimentary home movie camera, which um, you can only shoot a three minute roll, right? Yeah. And uh, there's all these people that fetishize uh, eight millimeter and super eight. I don't understand it personally because having shot on the, in that medium, it doesn't look good. I mean, it doesn't look as good, right? Yeah. Uh, but I figured, okay, I'll do it, you know. So I shot, I, I figured I'd document my apartment. I lived in Condessa, and the uh, landlord uh, had evicted everybody in the building except us because we refused to leave. 
they they decided to renovate the building after you know families had been living there for 30 years uh, i guess we were lucky to be able to live there for four and a half years right to me it was like being in paradise living in this building right it had a circular staircase and it was nice architecture and uh, the sunlight was great coming into the living room it was right next to a fountain you know and a there were two big parks nearby. One was a duck pond. You know, I, I mean, I, when I first moved to Mexico, I thought, wow, this is so much better than New York, right? I didn't realize I was living in a higher income neighborhood because our rent was so cheap. Somehow we lucked out on getting a cheap apartment, right? So then I got this guy to, well, I figured uh, the guy who had the camera or, yeah, he, uh, he knew, I guess, the person who uh, was getting the 10 filmmakers to do their three-minute roles i suggested he be the cameraman because we could there couldn't be any cuts you know it had to be three minutes so i told i directed him as he filmed uh, the interior of uh, the apartment with all the paintings and uh, toys and everything and my son and his mother and, and walking down the stairs and out on the street as a final uh, I guess, uh, historical document of uh, this place which got wiped out and replaced with a uh, niche uh, hotel for uh, American tourists. <laughs> well, did places like YouTube and the advent of digital get you excited for the amount of new content? Or do you find that artists are still not u utilizing the DIY aesthetic that you've been laying out and frankly calling for for the last four decades? Well, YouTube is, uh, is good because it has enabled people to get their work seen all over the world. It's um, unfortunately the only restrictions seem to be now, uh, they're, they're imposing restrictions, now political restrictions, like this documentary called Plandemic has been uh, banned from YouTube, but uh, still people with very little money can shoot digitally and... Uh, Actually, that, uh, YouTube is my main source of information for uh, news and political analysis. When I watch uh, Jimmy Dore show or The Hill or anytime Chris Hedges appears somewhere, uh, it's great because you can you know, access something that's not programmed for mass consumption, designed to manufacture your consent. You can... You can look at something extremely right-wing, left-wing, in-between, and then you can make the decision yourself as to uh, what, where the truth lies, right? And also people put up this, sometimes I'll see uh, old movies, you know, avant-garde or underground. There's this uh, site called ubu.net. I think it's Ubu Web. Well, you know that, that site? It sounds familiar. I'm not 100% sure what it's called, though. Their servers are in Mexico City. Uh, it's a great site because they have, well, they, they, they have a lot of uh, avant-garde, so-called, or underground films going back to, uh, you know, Louis Bunuel and Dolly in uh, the 1960s. They, they had some very obscure stuff, uh, audio stuff, too. And they and put some of my stuff on there, and, uh, and it's, yeah, they have a lot of really uh, unusual uh, material on there. 
Well, what is your reaction to the amount of artists that have taken influence from your work? Do you find this flattering, or is it something you you just try not to think about? Yeah, I don't think about it that much because I don't see it that much. Or if I see it, well, what? Yeah, well, I, well so one sometimes it's flattering, but then when it when it's produced by somebody who's a millionaire, uh, it bothers me. <laughs> Like when Oliver Stone did Natural Born Killers, and <laughs> yeah, there's footage in there that he clearly took from War as Menstrual Envy and Horgasm, and he wouldn't admit it when I met him, Tarantino, some of those other people. But uh, yeah, and then, but then like I'll, I'll run into somebody like Larry Clark, you know, who uh, directed Kids. Mm-hmm. I went into some bookstore once in uh, Manhattan, and, and he's like, "My God, it's Nick Zed." You're such a huge influence, uh, and I thought, oh, oh really? I, I wonder, wonder why? I, I don't know, or how would how would that happen? You know, usually I, I you know I hear about it from someone else, right? Did you but, ever have like a run-in with Quentin? Did he did he mention you at all? Any influence from there? I see a lot of influence in in what Quentin was doing, especially in the '90s, coming from you. <laughs> yeah, one time uh, I was in this bar on Avenue A on Sixth uh, Street, no Seventh Street, and I noticed Quentin Tarantino was sitting there with some black woman, and uh, I said to my friend, uh, maybe I should go up and talk to him, right? And, and I, I went, I said to him, uh, in Pulp Fiction, when you have Bruce Willis say, "That is dead," <laughs> was that directed at me? And he said. No, but it could have been. Wait, what kind of an answer is that? Uh. The thing was, at the time, he, I was talking to him. Oh, yeah, well, the first thing I said was, like, you know, I'm a fan of your movies. And he said, yes, of course, I'm a fan of your movies, too, man. And then we're talking, and uh, he's, in, he's in the men's room pissing into a urinal. And uh, I thought... I'm not going to continue the conversation while he takes a piss. You know, I thought it's too rude. You know, I just, okay, see ya. <laughs> Do you feel like there are any limits left to cross? Yeah, sure. Like, uh, we keep seeing, uh, new limitations imposed on everything. Uh, when I went to, uh, France for some, what was it in France or was it Germany? Anyway, I, I was, Maybe ten years ago, people were asking me, uh, "What could, what is transgressive now?" And maybe this is a dozen years ago, and I said, "Wikipedia, Julian Assange, that's transgressive," and I was right. You know, now now he's you know, the world's number one political prisoner, who's you know facing uh, extradition and torture and possible execution. So, yeah, what he's doing is transgressive or what he was trying to do before he got shut down by these, you know, fascists. I mean, uh, the, uh, well, I, I see movies, you know, like most mainstream movies are quite violent, I suppose, you know, especially the action movies. And uh, I like violence. It's entertaining. Or they'll uh, have, you know, drug use and all the rest of that. But now, now we're entering a phase of puritanism, you know, with the YouTube movement. So, uh, it seems like you're not allowed to show uh, honest sexuality, uh, but it, but now especially you can't question the dominant narrative about 
COVID-19. We're, everybody's supposed to admire Fauci, who contributed $3.7 million to the Wuhan lab to develop a, a virus from the blood of bats. The fact that uh, you know Brad Pitt plays him on Saturday Night Live as if he's a hero, that, that's part of the problem, right? You know, control of corporate media. They put up people like uh, Cuomo, the governor of New York, who cut funds for hospitals and doctors as, as if he's some kind of hero, right? It's, it's always, it seems like it's always the, the biggest uh, perpetrators of the worst crimes are the ones that the media elevates to hero status, right? So uh, attacking these people uh, is a good thing. I mean, what, at least I got to see uh, Planet of Humans before it got taken down by YouTube, mm-hmm. the Michael Moore produced film. Um, that seemed to offend a lot of people, right? Uh, even though it's just telling the truth, right? Or exposing the truth of how the environmental movement has been co-opted by money. I mean, I think there should be no censorship, obviously. It should be... Uh, free speech everywhere but now we got this political correctness going on everywhere and, and pe- people it's just the most extreme time it, it's it really feels like i don't know like being in some kind of hallucination i i can't believe what we're uh, living through now this year it's very strange well that brings me to my final question um has there been anything that has shocked you recently or is there artists now that you have felt kept the spirit of the manifesto alive just people uh, with their uh, cameras on the streets documenting police brutality. That's shocking. I, mean, I did a music video last year called The Reckoning, which I think is one of the most transgressive things I've done. And it's uh, about the history of uh, U.S. imperialism and all the atrocities that have been committed, all the, the number of people, it, uh, the number of people killed in so many countries by the U.S. military and as a result of uh, predatory capitalism. Whenever I've shown it, people tell me how uh, powerful it is. That's up on YouTube. But uh, the thing is, like, how do you ever know how many people you're affecting with it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, I I just keep doing what I've always done, I suppose. And I'm, I'm always on the outside. And it always seems that it takes people uh, 20 or 30 years to catch up with what I'm doing. Everybody, well, a lot of people are fixated on the past, right? The the 1980s. Uh, So it's nostalgia, I suppose, to uh, really uh, focus on the work that uh, I did back then. But since then, I've continued. I've written uh, a novel, an autobiography. I've done all these paintings and films and music videos. It just seems like the, the older you get, the more you, uh, I don't know, or sort of put on a shelf or something. But the same kind of thing occurred with uh, this guy I met named Charles Henry Ford, who was one of the people who put out View magazine in the 1940s. He was a, a gay guy who uh, his, his lover was Pavel Chelichu was one of the greatest modern artists, Russian. He, he, they lived in New York, uh, never got that famous, but uh, View magazine was kind of famous, right? Mm-hmm. They published you know, Marcel Duchamp and Picasso and all these people. And uh, he lived, Charles Henry Ford, 
lived in the Dakota Hotel and had seen a photo of me in uh, a newsletter and invited me to come have lunch with him. I went with him to some art galleries on the Upper West Side. He had been doing these uh, photo collages. He'd just get a magazine and a, and a razor blade and cut out images, color photos, and reassemble them. And they were beautiful. He would take them to galleries and just be totally rejected. They would just say, you got anything from the 40s? You know, all they cared about was like the old stuff he did with the surrealists. Whereas you know, the new stuff was brilliant. I, I felt so sorry for him, you know. I mean, at the time, he, he must have been around 90 years old. And uh, then he died a couple years after that. I don't know what happened with all that art, you know. It's a, you just keep hoping someone's going to discover you or... Or maybe someone, you know, from my generation will get in some position where they uh, have access to uh, money or something and then uh, invite me to appear somewhere. Yeah. I, well, yeah. it's, a, it's A lot of it's based on nostalgia or something, I guess. Like when people, they remember when they were kids, you know, and everybody's aware of the fact that th things keep getting more uh, constricted. You know, freedom keeps disappearing the more we live so uh, it becomes this kind of golden age where they look back and think wow it must have been so great to be back around then even though it wasn't that great then either but it, it wasn't it wasn't as severe as now although it's all really about perception i suppose you know you if you're free in your own mind that's what counts it's just that i kind of miss being able to go out to a restaurant or you know interact with other people right i, I mean i I miss the sense of community that existed before uh, what we're now experiencing. I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself in saying continue the art. <laughs> I, I look for it as much as I can from you. I, I'm a huge fan. I'd like to thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Nick. It really means a lot. All right. Thanks. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you're a cinephile like myself, I'm sure you understand the importance of Nick Zed's work in the cinema of transgression. So go grab a camera and start fucking with the system. And if you haven't already checked out all the work, why in the hell are you still listening to this? Go! This concludes our broadcast day.